Uh, good morning. It's good to see you. I wish it was spring. Ah, it's cold out there. I stepped out for a minute and it hadn't warmed up any. Um, I'm Wendell. I think most of you all know me. I'm the recovery pastor, the pathway pastor here at uh, Greenwood, and uh, we meet at Sunday night. Um, the passage was quite lengthy and uh, uh, interesting, to say the least. It's out of the Gospel of John, as you as you saw, John chapter 9. And um, it's unique among John's uh, stories. Um, just a little, many, many, many lesson on how to study the Bible, like a new technique to study the Bible. If you, um, you'll see where I'm going here in a minute. If you are, are reading an author like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whatever, you're reading one of the Gospels and, you, and you're kind of becoming um, acquainted, familiar with the author, you're kind of getting a feel for him. And, and a lot of times, like Mark is always in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that? Straightway, right away, blah, blah, blah. He's just in a hurry. His book is shorter than any other Gospel. Well, you, you notice patterns that these guys have. And so if you can, if you can dig into some of these patterns... Um, it helps you get to know them better. Plus, uh, if they break a pattern, then it's like, oh, what's he done here? What is he trying to do something special here? So in, in John's gospel, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lar preached on Jesus and Nicodemus, two guys, two guys. And then there's a story, uh, right following that where Jesus met the woman at the well, two people, boom, boom. And then on in John, you find the guy by the pool of uh, Shalom, however you say that, uh, waiting for 30 years, you know, for the water to stir and him get healed. Jesus comes and has a one-on-one -on -one encounter with this guy. So there's a pattern in John's gospel of these one-on-ones that Jesus has with people. And all of a sudden you have this story where um, you have a bunch of players in the story and they're not just extras. They're not just stand-ins. They actually have part of the dialogue and part of the the thinking process, part of the learning process. And, and so you're like, okay, John just broke his own protocol. He broke his own pattern. What is, what does this mean? What is this? What's he trying to say? And so that, you know, that gave me pause. I thought, wait a minute. I've never really thought about this before that, that uh, he has all these extra players that aren't just stand-ins. They're significant players in the, in the story. You know, let's just review. You got, um, the disciples, right, who say, who sinned to make this guy sick. Then you got um, the neighbors, the townspeople who say, we've seen this guy forever, and he was always blind from birth. And and so you got that. And then you've got the Pharisees who come in with their <laughs> books <laughs> to fix the situation um, with their wisdom. And then, and then you got the parents. And then, of course, you got the guy born blind, and you got Jesus. So you got all these, these players in this story. And so, you know, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, okay, so what is John trying to say? So it helped me that, that um, in, in the assignment of preaching on this passage, the theme is restoration or to restore something. So I asked myself the question, who in this story gets restored. I mean, duh, the blind guy, right? And so I thought, okay, so obviously it's Jesus and the blind guy. Jesus does the restoring and the blind guy gets restored 
why all these other people? Well, so the nature of, of the restoration in this story is the blind guy could not see, and now he can see, right? I mean, that's, that. so we're talking about seeing. We're talking about awareness. We're talking about sight. Jesus mentioned that he's the light of the world in this passage. He's, uh, you know, so he's, this is about being aware. It's about that light that helps us be aware. And so I think, okay, one guy got it. One guy's eyes were open and he got it. And literally at the very end, they're pressing him the whole way. Everybody keeps pressing him. The guy's interrogated by everybody, questioned, you know, by everybody. And he gets to the end of the story and he literally says, I don't know if this guy's a sinner or not. He said, I do know this one thing. I was blind and now I can see. I'm the only one in the story here who can see. The rest of y'all are blind. He didn't say that. But if we look back through the story, we find out they were a little blind. They were a little blind. And so let's just start with the disciples. Um, they, they have this fog over their eyes that says if something bad happens, we got to blame somebody. There's got to be somebody's fault. Because bad stuff just doesn't happen. Good stuff just doesn't happen. Either if good stuff happens, we need to give somebody credit. But isn't it interesting that we're not so insistent on that? But when bad stuff happens, we gotta we got to hold somebody to blame. You know, mom or dad comes in the kitchen. you got three or four little kids there, and there's milk all over the table. Who spilled the milk, you know? Or where did these crumbs come from by the cookie jar? Got it. Somebody's got to be at fault. If there's a terrible accident, whose fault was the accident? I mean, I even had somebody ask me uh, back in the in the days of COVID, can we talk about that past incident? We can, can't we? Ah, that's cool. Past tense. Yes. Yay. But back in the days of COVID, I actually had somebody ask me, uh, whose fault is this? Is this China's fault or did God do this? And I'd like, those are my choices. <laughs> and I thought, nobody's fault. It just happened. But you, you, what it, what's with this human need to blame? What's, what is it with us that, that has to point the finger, has to find fault when something, when something bad happens? So I, I dug into that because... I used to be a real finger pointer, and I still struggle with that some. Are you a finger pointer? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but are are we so prone to do that? You know, to want to point fingers and 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 blame other people. But man, that that was my bread and butter for years. Now it's just my bread. It's not, it's not the bread and butter. No, it's not near as bad as it was. But pre getting into uh, celebrate recovery, which became pathway pre recovery with me. I was real big on that. I was real, real big on we got to blame other people. I was always the victim. They were the one at fault. And and if something bad happened, they did it. I didn't do it. Um, but as I got in recovery and I got honest about myself and I started exploring my story and I started telling my story and I started hearing the stories of other people, I realized that the root of all this was not really blame, it was shame. That I was, I felt shame. So I lived in a world 
in a, in an atmosphere, in a fog of, um, well, let, let's back up. Do we know what shame is? We understand what regret is, right? I regret making that business decision. We know what guilt is. I hurt so-and-so, and I feel guilty for that. Shame is something completely different. Shame is I apologize that I exist. I'm ashamed to be me. I sh I'm ashamed to take up any space here on this planet. That's shame. When you, when you just literally feel like you need to apologize that you exist at all. And so I lived in a lot of shame. And by the way, guilt and regret are natural human responses. Shame is not. Shame is not from God. If you ever feel shame, don't ever think that God put that on you because God does. Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, I didn't come to condemn. I didn't come to shame you. I came to save you. So don't ever think that shame comes from God because it doesn't. Guilt and regret, human emotions, God built them in. Shame, not so much. Dark side. So I lived in shame, self-loathing, whatever you want to call it. So I kind of assumed everybody else did too. And I kind of assumed everybody else in the, on the planet looked at life the same way I looked at life. And so I'm going to blame you before you can blame me. I'm going to find fault with what you did before you find fault with what I did. And so it became this, this uh, shame and blame and fault. And, and, and I call that a, a judicial mindset. I, I, always in terms of, of right and wrong, who's to blame, who's not to blame, who should get arrested, who should get off scot-free. You see what I'm saying? You see life through this. There's no grace in that. There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. There's just, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. I'm going to hold you accountable. Don't you dare try to hold me accountable. So maybe I dug too far into the disciples. I don't know. Maybe I'm taking that too far. But I kind of get them saying, if this thing happened to this guy, it's got to be somebody's fault. Sometimes bad things just happen. And sometimes good things just happen. It's just life. You know, it's just life. So the disciples are kind of blinded by this judicial lens. And, and then you get the townspeople, you get the neighbors, and they've watched this guy from day one. They've watched as he's nearly been run over by a camel. They've watched as he's wandered around trying to find his mom and dad, whatever. They've watched this little boy grow up, and they've watched him struggle to adjust to not being able to see like the rest of them could see. Some of them have probably shown him some mercy and help. Others have probably seen him as an annoyance. I don't know. I know how people can be. But they've, they've seen him this way. In that culture, back in that day, there were a lot of eye diseases where you were born sighted and you got a disease. And sometimes that disease uh, could be cured some way or, or you got over the disease and then you could see again. So that was quite common. But this guy did not contract a disease that made him blind. This guy was born that way. And in John, he makes it very clear from the very get-go, this guy was born this way. He could not see from day one. So the neighbors all knew that. The townspeople all knew that. They didn't think scientifically like we do. You know what I'm saying? So they would have not used this term. They would have not said, this is scientifically impossible. 
they, because that's not the way they thought. But they would have said, this is impossible. This, this does not compute. And they didn't have calculators either. But when I punch it into the calculator, when I do the math on this, it doesn't, no, it doesn't come out right. It, do, it doesn't make sense to us. And I think about how many decisions I've made in life. I think about how many relationships I've tried to have and how many just life things I've done that I've said, we can't take that next step because it doesn't make sense. Or we can't trust God here because to do so does not make sense. It's got to make sense before I do it. So God, you sit there and wait until I can figure you out. And when I can figure you out and you make sense to me, then you can come play in my game. But if until then, I'm going to sit here and try to figure it out and make sense out of it. As if I've got the brain for that. As if I've got the IQ to, to tell God when it's time to come in and do his thing. That's kind of silly, isn't it? <laughs> and it's kind of silly to think that that's combined with this thing of shame. So I feel ashamed of myself, and then I think I have the brains to figure out how to be unashamed. Are you a mess like me? <laughs> the reason I'm the pastor of Pathways is because I'm the biggest mess there. Um, yeah, we're, we're messed up. But if it's not the shame thing, it's the I can't figure this out thing. So until you make sense, God, we're not going any further with this. So that's the neighbors. God doesn't make sense, so it can't happen. It can't be. It's not possible. And then at the first service, Jeremy read the scripture and he made it pause and they said, then they called the Pharisees. Like, seriously? <laughs> Robbie's the only one in the room. My wife here is the only one who knows Dave, who ran WBRY. Remember him? And uh, we came from a little county in Middle Tennessee called, it was a shotgun county. Name of the county is Cannon County. That tells you a little something. <laughs> it's bigger than a shotgun. But anyway, we had a little radio station run by a guy. I think he was from Ohio. I don't know where he's from. He wasn't local there, and he didn't know the local etiquette and protocol. He didn't understand how we did things there. And so literally, you you could have a, a pretty tragic car accident. You could have, and the, and the roads were real twisty and turny, so we had a lot of fender benders and some pretty bad car wrecks. And he, he had this reputation for showing up at a terrible car wreck and trying to interview grieving relatives or people who are laying on a stretcher or it's like, no, Dave, no, no. People tried to tell him, you don't do that, Dave. No, you don't do that. So calling the Pharisees is like calling Dave, you know, oh, why did, why did you call them? Why did you call these guys? So they come, of course, Dave wasn't like this, but Pharisees come strutting in their nose is up. Their head is back. They've got probably some sort of manuscript in their in their arm probably not but i'm making believe and they comes you know in with this pomp and circumstance we know y'all are confused we know you've puzzled over this we'll help you we'll help you because we have a manual here that we can look it up in we can find tell us some of the details we'll look it up in the law book and we'll figure out what's really going on here so they start asking questions and lo and behold Jesus had healed this guy 
on the wrong day. Sunday through Friday, legal healing. Saturday, you cannot heal. Illegal, eh, you know. We chuckle. They were dead serious. They all took this serious. So they show up and they say, okay, so we've checked the manual, you know, we Googled it, <laughs> and we, we see that this guy healed on the Sabbath. So nobody would do that but a sinner. You know, instantly they start connecting dots. The book says, if you do this, you're a sinner. That guy's a sinner, so he couldn't have done it. it it's a ruse. The guy wasn't born blind. It's all a fake. The only, th only way they could look at it is through this legalistic rule book way of looking at things. Now, Robbie and I were talking about this yesterday. And she said, she said, Wendy, you got to understand, or maybe I told her this, I don't know, which it went one way or the other. Not everybody grew up the same way we did. Robbie and I grew up in an extremely legalistic situation. Our religion was keeping the rules, period. And there were dire consequences if you didn't. I mean, it was grounds for dismissal if you didn't keep all the little rules. It is stifling. It is fear-driven. It is... Uh, it, it, the good news of the gospel, come and obey our rules. You know, go out and evangelize and tell them the good news. And you were like, what good news? That they get to come here and we stand over them with a whip and make sure they keep all the rules. That's the good news that we're, you know. So we don't we don't talk about grace. Talk about keeping the rules. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm trying to look around and see your facial features. There are a few of you who are identifying with this. That you're like, yeah, I know what that's like to grow up in fear and shame and and, and just this heavy hand of the law over you. Who is God? He's a judge. He's a policeman. He's, you know, he's, he's going to get you if you're bad. And, and that, that's our view of God. He's not a father who's inviting us. He's this legalistic hard case. And so the Pharisees come in, and of course, they're completely clueless. The Messiah that they've read all about in these documents is standing right here, and they don't even see him. They're completely blind to him because they're all covered up. They're not just filtered. It's just blind. That's why Jesus said the blind leading the blind. They're, they're just covered up with his legalism. If you come from a place of legalism, guess what, y'all? You're free. The chain's cut. You don't have to be that way. God is not keeping track of your behavior. He's not keeping a checklist. God is your father who loves you and knew you were going to screw up before he ever created you. So anyway, so here we got, we got the, the Pharisees who are blinded by the rules. And then you got the parents. Just think about that. John gives us a footnote that tells us what drives the parents. He didn't really tell us with the other ones, but he told us about the parents. So going in, we already know the parents will do anything they have to do 
to stay in good shape at the local church. So we're going to throw our own son who has been blind his whole life and who just looked his mama in the eye for the first time ever. Think about that, moms. Or think about it, dads. My son just looked in my eye for the first time ever, and I'm going to throw him under the bus. I'm going to throw him under the bus so I'll stay in good stead with my local church. When church, when church, any church, I might get fired for this, Laura sitting here listening to you. When any church demands loyalty to it over loyalty to family, I don't know about you, but I'm hunting the door. I'm out of here. When we have to reject our children for any reason, any reason, and our church tells us we have to, I'm hitting the door. I'm just saying. I'll go on record with that. Yeah. So they're blinded by the fear of exclusion. They're, they're blinded by the fear of peer rejection. Okay, so we get to the end of the story. And we see now we're left with just this guy. And they're trying to get, the Pharisees go back to him, and they're trying to get him to admit that Jesus was a fraud and that, or that he wasn't blind his whole life. Whatever. They're trying to figure, they're, try, they're pressuring him. And so he just says, I don't know whether the guy's a sinner or not. He said, the one thing I do know is that I was blind and now I can see. So in this story, how would you define, in this story, not in every story, but in this story, how would you define the word restoration, which is the theme of what we're talking about? How would you restore it? Or how would you define it? Restoration is clarity. Restoration is awareness. Being fully aware. It's not a moral upgrade. It's not an intellectual upgrade. You see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going here? This is a, an awareness upgrade. I see more clearly than I've ever seen before. Jesus was all about this. In the Gospels, He told His disciples over and over, watch, be alert, be aware. And I always equated that with like watch for the second coming of Jesus. And I think, no, I think be alert and aware of all the places Jesus wants to show up in our lives every day. Like Pastor Wayne used to say, Jesus is at work in everybody all the time. Am I looking for that? Am I aware of what Jesus is doing? Jesus is at work in a country song, in a novel, in a TV show, in a conversation in the grocery store line. Jesus is at work in the waiting room at the doctor's office. Jesus is all these places. Am I aware? This blind guy said, Jesus is right there. I see him. Do we see Jesus? Are we aware of Jesus? Because in this story, that's the definition of being restored. 
Not I'm behaving better or I know more than I used to know. No, I'm more aware than I used to be. That's restoration.